put that coffee down. Coffee is for creators only. My name is James Newcomb, and I'm inviting you to an exclusive accountability program that will help you set and achieve your creative goals. It costs nothing but your time and patience. Go to coffeeisforcreators.com to learn more. It's the story of the trumpet in the words of those who play it. What is it about this crazy mass of metal tubing that makes us laugh, cry, want to flat out quit at times, and then keep coming back for more? My name is James Newcomb, and I am thrilled to host this show that brings on world famous, not famous, and everything in between trumpeters to share what keeps the trumpet blowing and the music flowing. It's the Trumpet Dynamics Podcast, and it begins now. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Trumpet Dynamics, telling the story of the trumpet in the words of those who play it. And this is James Newcomb coming into your earballs. And what a treat it is to have on the call with us, Travis Peterson. If you listen to the last episode with Jeff Luke, uh, Travis is uh, Jeff's partner in crime in Utah. And uh, we had a great time talking with Jeff, and uh, Travis's name came up many times. And thought I had to have to reach out to this guy because we had talked about it a, a, a while ago, and I just sent a text saying, "Hey man, you miss you're missing out. The world is missing out on what you have to share. So let's book a time." And we got it done, and so here we are. So it's great to have yeah. you, man. It's great being here. Thanks for having me, James. Um, you know, I it's it's weird to hear that you guys were talking about me, but uh, you know, uh, I got to defend myself. Yeah, your ears must have been tingling a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> I don't know if. Yeah, so many people right. are talking to me about me all the time, so they're always <laughs> right. tingling. So right. it's kind of yeah. how it works. Travis Peterson is the topic of gossip, especially just in you know the trumpet world. Yes, everybody's talking in about blogs me. covering obscure orchestras all over the world. Travis Travis's name comes up all the time. Absolutely, you know it. Um, <laughs> no, Jeff is great. I love Jeff. Is he's a fantastic colleague, and I I couldn't ask for a better guy in the section associate principal, you know, like he's super easy to work with, you know, we can confide in each other and talk to each other about each other's problems or what we're happy with, all that stuff. It's great. So I can't speak highly enough about Jeff. Well, Travis and I have a bit in common. We both are alumni of the Madison Scouts Drum and Bugle Corps. Heck yeah. Preceded uh, Travis by a few years. I did it in 1994. And then Travis, you did it, what, 99 through 03, uh, was it? 2000 through 2004. Oh, in Yeah, in 99, I marched with Capital Sound. So, oh, yeah. Yeah, good stuff. And they're, they were in Madison as well. Yeah, they, they were like under, under, they were part of the Madison, I think it was called the Madison Drum and Bugle Corps Association back uh -huh. then. I think it's something different now. But yeah, so okay. it was, because um, my high school, you know, being from Minnesota, um, rural Minnesota, we didn't do, field shows at all so i didn't yeah. know what i was doing and <laughs> i thought it'd be a good idea to get some experience marching cap sound for that one summer and then you know then in 2000 so like the, it's scouts. like it's like the jv squad to the madison scouts basically pretty much yeah. yeah i mean it was it was kind of like a in a way the feeder core yeah um it was good experience and you know my parents let me leave for the summer when i was 
had just turned 16. I was like, you know, I didn't even have my driver's license or anything. So it was pretty impressive that they let me do that, considering what we all know now about drum corps and, you know, how it used to be run and all that stuff. So it was, it was pretty crazy. It's, uh, it's, they've cleaned up their act a little bit. I would say so. Yeah. It, um, it was a bit raunchy from what I recall. <laughs> yeah. That's one way to put it. You know, I mean, there's just, you know, stuff, stuff happens, you know, it was, it was like a fraternity. I mean, really. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's like a fraternity. The way, the way I, that's the way I sort of like tell people who don't know what drum corps is, especially like the Madison scouts, but I guess even co-ed corps are probably used to be like a fraternity, you know? Right. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, it was, I spent a lot of time doing that. And then I taught for two years after that too, visual oh, okay. staff. So oh, okay. it was a lot v- of victimless crime is how I would describe drum corps in the eighties and nineties. Yeah, that's, that's a good, <laughs> that's a good way of describing it. Um, but I love drum corps. I still love drum corps and I'm happy that I did it. And you know, it kind of, Oh yeah. It was, uh, it was, I think it was very um, sort of important in my development as a brass player, you know, as a mm-hmm. trumpet player. And I didn't know it then. Like I wasn't really like um, thinking about all the fundamentals that I was like, you know, sort of gleaning from all the instructors. But I mean, looking back now, I mean, it's all the breathing exercises, all the Clark studies, all the exercises that we would do as a horn line. Like it was, you can't, you can't get better instruction than that at that age, especially I don't think, yeah. you know, consistently. Yeah. I think you're um, right. Yeah. Um, yeah, so they do. Good. They do teach the fundamentals, and uh, I remember this is twenty-seven years ago. I did mm-hmm. it, and there's still things that that I I have taken away. And I will say, I will say that the biggest thing that I took away from my drum corps experience is not really has anything to do with music per se or performing mm-hmm. per se, but it's kind of the character of um, or kind of an attitude of. I don't know how to exactly how to say it, but kind of bucking the system or spurring the establishment. Sure. And you can probably relate to this because the Madison Scouts back in the day were kind of like kind of like rebels against the DCI establishment. Absolutely. And I wanna I wanna share a story because in case there's like some DCI fan here, because I, I stopped in <laughs> and I, I visited Scott Stewart in two thousand five. And this is after he had stepped down as the director of the scouts, right? Right, yeah, yeah. And he just he explained to me that there was internal discussions between him and some of the other bigwigs in DCI. This is <clears throat> mid 80s ish. And mm-hmm. they wanted to make like a super like a, a an organization of super drum corps. They wanted to make it a an elite activity on par with the stuff that you see on ESPN. Wow. This was in the 80s. So, I, I, th- I want to say it's the mid-80s. Wow, he was approached. He was approached about this, this idea of having it be this elite athletic thing. Huh. And he turned it down. He said, I don't want anything to do with this. Drum Corps is all about community and yeah. building character and developing... Uh, young people's uh, the, setting them up for life. The, the competition Absolutely. is not what we're about, and he he wanted nothing to do with it. And that that is a lot of uh, the kind of the FDCI mentality that we that you and I experienced. Yeah, it stems from that. 
that was sort of the impetus of it, I suppose, yeah. you know, yeah. <clears throat> that's crazy. What an interesting story. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah. Scott Stewart, Scott Stewart was great. Um, you know, good guy, good teacher, good mentor for a lot of people. Yeah. He's kind of like a father figure for, absolutely for people yeah. mm-hmm. away from their fathers for the first time. Yeah, exactly. I mean, everybody goes on the road. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's no, interesting thinking about drum corps because I I've been talking to some colleagues and stuff uh, in the orchestral world, like the brass world, the past couple of weeks about like breathing, just in general. Like obviously, playing the trumpet, we have to be able to breathe efficiently and use our air efficiently. I think that that's like the biggest thing that I took away from the fundamentals of like playing a brass instrument is like looking back at like, you know, breathing block running and like breathing in and out in metered time while you're running. And then um, all the breathing exercises that we did, I didn't think anything of it when I was marching drum corps because it's sort of, it's not being spoon fed to you. Like you're engaged in what you're doing when you're in drum corps, but at the same time, the instructors are like telling you what to do and you're doing it and you're engaged in it. But now, you know, 20 years later, I'm finding that I need to like reacquaint myself with, with sort of these breathing fundamentals and these breathing exercises in a way that I think will benefit my own trumpet playing sitting mm-hmm. on stage now, you yeah. know, because yeah. I think I've sort of lost touch with that a little bit. And I'm like, perhaps playing a little bit less efficiently than I could be if I was actually implementing these ideas that I mm-hmm. first learned in drum corps, which is kind right. of crazy. Right. Um, I think it's fascinating. Your body changes as you grow older. Your body becomes less efficient. I was literally just talking to Ben Wright, who's second trumpet in the Boston Symphony. He was one of my teachers when I was in school. And Mm -hmm. um, he was telling me that he and he knows a lot of trumpet players that in their sort of late 30s, which is where I am right now, I'm 38, could start, they, they sort of like met, they approached this line of like where they needed to really start thinking about this stuff like we're talking about like fundamentals and breathing and their body changing and getting older and aging you know and like sort of reacquainting yourself and reassessing certain things so that you can continue moving forward as a professional you know Mm. and i'd never thought about that before until he said that and i was he was like yeah when i was 39 or something that he said he was like i i kind of like went through these these things and i seeked out help and advice and talk to a lot of people. And I was like, that's exactly what I'm going through right now. So it was, it was nice to hear that. Okay. So now we're through the first line of your bio. So let's continue. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Travis is also the principal trumpet of the Utah symphony. Yes. And as I mentioned before, Jeff Luke is the, his colleague, associate mm-hmm. principal. And so there he is in Salt Lake city yes. making music and making history with each note poured into yeah. that instrument with the aging lungs and the aging body. Exactly. So, My existential crisis happening <laughs> over here. What is life like in the Utah Symphony? Um, it's great. I mean, I I am very fortunate and lucky to have a job in a full-time symphony orchestra playing principal trumpet. Um, I never in my wildest dreams thought that I would do that. You know, when I was... I mean, it's, it's beautiful being here in Utah in the mountains, you know, being from Minnesota, which is flat, um, and then mm-hmm. living on the East Coast when I was at school, and then when I was at New World Symphony in Miami, it's all flat. So, like, I love the mountains, and I always had, but, like, when I auditioned here 
you know, almost 10 years ago, I didn't even know that I knew that there were mountains in Utah, but like, I didn't really know, you know what I mean? So I can't, I flew in for the, the uh, audition and I was just like, holy crap, like this is, it's legitimately like in the foothills of the Wasatch Front, which is, which is mm-hmm. what it's called out here. Right, and right. Uh, it's great. I mean, the setting, you know, sort of geographically is you, you just can't beat it. And then the orchestra uh, is just fantastic. I mean, it's it's a really great group of musicians. Um, there's been a lot of turnover since I've been here, really. You know, the music director that we have, Terry Fisher, he has hired, I think, like upwards of 30 people in the past 10 years, like new hires. Wow. So there's been that many people that have retired. Because I think when he got the job 10 or so years ago, the orchestra was, um, you know, of the older age. Mm -hmm. Um, and so like naturally people have just retired since he's been here. And so it's just kind of, it's really neat to see the, the, the level of the orchestra and the sort of energy of the orchestra has changed since I've been here even. Um, and the potential of the orchestra, I think is that it's like all time high right now, which I think is really exciting. We're doing a music director search right now. Um, cause Terry's leaving at the end of next season. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's all really exciting too. You know, like we, it's just, it's great. I can't, um, it's hard to wrap my head around how lucky I am to, you know, perform every week, different repertoire and big stuff, small stuff. We could do four operas a year, which is a mm-hmm. lot of fun too. So I could sit in the pit. Um, yeah, it's, I can't complain. That's for sure. Well, I don't think you've said anything that would pass as a complaint. <laughs> I mean, the air, the air quality in the middle of the, in the middle of the winter here in Utah can be pretty crappy. Um, really? Yeah, it's we. There's a couple of days during the winter every year that we have the worst air quality in the world. Really? Um, yeah, because like what there's this thing. There's this thing here that they it's called um, an inversion. So basically, okay. like Salt Lake is kind of in a valley, so it's kind of surrounded by mountains. Okay. And basically, what'll happen is. I don't know exactly what happens, but this is the gist of it. Like a, a high pressure and a low pressure system will get like stuck on top of each other over, over the valley. And then that's, that creates the inversion. So basically like all of the pollution plus, you know, ozone and it just makes it really um, gritty and kind of gross. Like you can't, mm-hmm. yeah, you can't see the mountains when it's like that in the winter. Um, it's really depressing actually. Wow, but then, yeah, it's it's crazy. It's just like this weird anomaly. And then obviously, like when a storm comes in, and if it snows or if it rains in the winter or whatever it does, um, it'll clear it up, you know, for a couple of weeks, and then it'll sort of like just kind of huh. redo it. Um, it's kind of nuts. So it's nice. It's nice though when that does happen in the winter, you can get up into the mountains and like go skiing or go do whatever. Um, like once you're like above a certain elevation or out of the valley it's beautiful. And you can actually, if you're like skiing for a day up at snowbird in one of the canyons and you're like coming down after the day and you're like halfway down the canyon, getting back into the Valley, you can see the inversion just like hanging over the whole city Valley. It's it's kind of a, it's kind of eerie looking. Um, but it's actually really fascinating looking. You can probably look up Google images and see what it looks like. It's it's really, it's really neat. It's fascinating. So, well, it's not fascinating to be, breathing that stuff in not at all but right. uh you know thankfully i haven't it hasn't really affected trumpet playing you know um hearkening back to talking about breathing a little bit like you'd think that it would affect it a little bit but it it hasn't it huh. doesn't really affect it all that so it just lasts for a few days 
Yeah, I mean, it can last for a few days. I think the la- the longest it's lasted is maybe like a week and a half. Sometimes, like it's just it could be it just very it, it depends on like what the what the flow of the weather systems are. You know, like El Nino or La Nina and like all that stuff. The jet stream. Yeah, I sound like a meteorologist all of a sudden, but I have no idea what I'm talking about. Okay, no, good. You, you don't sound like a meteorologist. <laughs> <laughs> You're good. Good. Dang it! I was trying really hard. So um, is, is skiing something? one of the things that you do to blow off steam when you're not playing trumpet? Yeah. So when my wife and I moved here back in 2013, um, we both like sort of learned how to ski. Um, and we loved it. We had season passes at different resorts, um, for like the first four years or so every winter. Um, maybe five years. I can't remember. Um, I think that the last couple of years, we sort of just like hopped around and didn't have a season pass and just kind of like explored. Cause there's a whole bunch of resorts out here. I think there's like eight or nine downhill ski resorts, um, which is amazing. But the past couple of years, I've really gotten into Nordic skiing, hmm. um, like cross country skiing. Um, okay. Cause I have, we have a dog and I can take him with, and it's good for him to be out in the winter too. Cause otherwise there's nothing for him to do. And it's great cardio. So it's a really, it's a harder workout not that skiing is about working out, but like, you know, it's, it's nice to like be able to be outside and get some cardio in while you're in like this beautiful setting. You know what I mean? Um, so yeah, I do that to blow off steam. Um, you know, during the summer or during nice weather when there's no snow, it's, it's really beautiful to hike. Um, you just can't, you can't beat it out here, you know, cause it's like sort of an arid kind of deserty climate here in Salt Lake city. But then once you go up one of the canyons, it's all of a sudden this like alpine sort of uh, oasis. <laughs> you know, it's like you're in Switzerland or something. Um, it's really beautiful, like of pine trees and aspen trees and lakes and all that stuff. <laughs> it's like a, a stark difference from what it's like down here in the valley. So I have um, to ask because yeah. Jeff, when I spoke to him a couple of weeks ago, he's he's like on cloud nine. He's like Mister Content, Mister Mister Zen, and he he just loves life. And now here you are, you're just raving about life in Salt Lake City, in spite of the inversion occasionally. You're, you're just loving. But my question is, are all members of the Utah Symphony as happy as you two? I would say, by and large, yes. Really? It's, it's, it's pretty crazy. I mean, it's a very happy orchestra. I don't, I mean, it's not crazy that that's a possibility. It's a possibility, but like... It does sound crazy to you. I mean, anyone that knows about orchestras thinks knows that that's a bit of an anomaly. Yeah. I mean, we can, musicians, we can be a picky bunch, you know, as individuals and as an ensemble, whatever. But like when I moved here, I mean, I didn't plan on like leaving and I don't necessarily plan on leaving now for a different job or something. But like, I think people were just like, oh, you know, it's the the Utah Symphony. It's a full-time gig. But if I have a better opportunity, like in San Francisco or like a bigger city, like I'm going to take that. But once I, I feel like once everybody gets here, they're just like, holy crap, like it, you, you can't beat this, you know, like I live downtown. So it's like I bike to work every day, you know, to rehearsals and performances. I live a mile from the hall and I can bike there in 10 minutes. It's fantastic. Some people live, you know, probably six miles away. So their commute is 15 minutes uh, to a great paying job to play in an orchestra. I don't know what other city that you'd be able to do that in. You know, um, so I think there's all kinds of factors that sort of weigh into, I think, the orchestra being happy. So that's like the logistical side of stuff. And then artistically, it's 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 not it's not a bad artistic 
level for an orchestra. And I'm being modest when I say that. I think it's a fantastic artistic level for an orchestra. We get great guest conductors. We get great guest artists and, and soloists. And we play big rep. Um, and we sound good doing it. So, I mean, I'm proud of being in this orchestra. And I'm proud of my colleagues. And I'm proud of what we do week to week. And I think it's a special sort of group that we've put together um, over you know the past decade that... Uh, is really special, you know, and I think it's only going up and getting better and better. So, yeah. Wow. Well, this podcast is sponsored by the Utah Symphony's Audition Committee. If you're interested. <laughs> We've got some openings. Come and, come and audition. What openings do you have? Um, let's see. Principal Oboe, um, Tuba. Tuba's open. Okay, I don't play either of those. Yeah, I know. Hmm. Uh, sadly, there's no trumpet openings right now, hmm. unfortunately. There's a vi- there's a I think it's assistant concert master is open. Um, there's some violin spots open. I think there's a viola principal cello. I think is open. It's good. It's it's exciting. You know, I think it's an exciting time to be part of the orchestra. Just, All right. Well, you don't so- you don't sound arrogant. You don't sound like you're cocky. You just sound like you're self aware. And there's nothing good. wrong with being aware of being good at something. And when you're aware that you have a good thing. But you kind of yeah. mentioned um, that that mentality of maybe the Utah Symphony is a stepping stone to something bigger, like mm-hmm. the San Francisco mm-hmm. or Los Angeles, mm-hmm. whatever the case may be. Sure. And I want to know, like you're describing how the Utah Symphony is great. I'm sure that if I were to walk into the concert, concert hall, I would think it was it's fantastic. I'm, I'm sure that based on your description and Jeff's description, I'd be like, yeah, this is great. These guys mm-hmm. are top notch. But... In your discerning ears, what sets the Utah Symphony apart from some of those bigger fish in the pond, such as, say, Philadelphia, Minnesota, San Francisco? Sure. What is, what is the difference between an orchestra of your level between those types of ensembles? There, I think there's several things that can probably set apart like the, <clears throat> the, the big orchestras, like the Boston and Philadelphia and New York or whatever. Like, I think it's the sort of history that they have and the, the the culture that they've built over, you know, decades of their performance practice and like their sound and the way they approach certain types of music, different um, styles or different uh, like French music versus, you know, English music or German music. I think that's the biggest thing. And while the Utah Symphony has been around for 80 plus years, um, there was probably a good amount of that where it was considered just kind of a community orchestra. You know what I mean? So like, yeah. Yeah. Um, whereas like the bigger orchestras, Boston, all these ones that we're talking about, some of those have only been around maybe for 90 years or maybe 75 years. I think Atlanta is celebrating their 75th anniversary this year, maybe. I think they have they have a stronger tradition that has been implemented for longer than it's been implemented here in Utah. Cohesion plays into it. Like if you listen to the Boston Symphony is recording all the Shostakovich symphonies right now. Um, I don't know if you've listened to any of them, but they're fantastic. And um, I highly recommend all of them that they've released so far. I, I don't think that you can find better recordings of any of them. But if you listen to like just the orchestra in general, the string sound is just so rich and luscious constantly. And their precision is also amazing too. 
And then when you listen to the brass section, it's just so balanced and like the color that they're getting across the board is so cohesive. I think that we are capable of doing that here in Utah. And I hope that we find that eventually. And I think we're doing good things and taking steps forward in finding that and discovering that and working with each other and doing that. It's just not quite there yet. You know what I mean? These bigger, you know, more esteemed institutions, orchestras that exist, um, they just have that tradition that has been around for years. You know what I mean? Whereas the Utah Symphony has a sort of sense of tradition, but I don't think it's as steeped as the other orchestras. Does that all yeah. make sense? Oh, yeah. What comes to mind is like this uh, Chicago school when it comes yeah. to brass playing because yeah. Bud Herseth and uh, mm-hmm. Arnold Jacobs and, you know, I, I, all the names escape me at the moment, but they were together Clevenger, for... Clevenger, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Clevenger, yeah. yeah. They were together uh-huh. for decades. Yes. And they mm-hmm. built together, they were already great when they got there, but they just took it to a, a whole new level. And now, you know, Chicago is known for that that specific sound. Exactly. Like, and and uh, maybe Utah, if, in, in spite of your great, great things going for you, you just don't have that type of tradition. You don't... Yeah, exactly. You guys aren't... Like, you, you, maybe the best way to put it is you guys don't, like, set the standard in a way that uh, right. Chicago would. Yeah. Exactly. And yeah, that, makes yeah, sense. that, that tradition just... I mean, doesn't exist here yet. You know what I mean? I think that we're we're sort of nurturing something, you know, that could become a tradition here for us. And what would it take to get to that place where you guys are like setting the standard in a specific niche of the classical music world? I mean, consistency and I think longevity with with people in the orchestra, you know? Mm. You know, I've almost been here for 10 years. Mark Davidson, he's the principal trombone. He's been here for about as long as I have. The second trombone, he's new. He's been here for six years. The bass trombone, he's been here for as long as I have also. So there's a lot of new people. And I think along with that, we're able to establish something new and something, I don't even want to say better, because I don't want to like downplay what it was before I got here. You know what I mean? Because it was it was good before I got here, clearly. And we're not trying to, we, we don't mean to be disrespectful at all. We're just keeping things real. We're keeping things in, in perspective. Yeah. And we're just, we're really just having a conversation for, for three sure. people for to sure. listen to. So. <laughs> for sure. But uh, yeah, I, I think it's, I think the, the building blocks are sort of in place for, right. for what we're doing here with the Utah Symphony to really be something extraordinarily special, you know? Um, our concert master, she just started five years ago. I mean, mm-hmm. so since I've been here, we hired a new concert master and, um, the string sound since she's been here has really gotten this depth of sound and this richness that, um, didn't exist in the string mm-hmm. section, you know, seven, eight years ago when I got really? here. Yeah. It's really, it's really special. All of those variables, I think are sort of aligning and coming together to make what we're doing really special. And I'm hoping that it's not about getting recognition, but I want people to know that the Utah symphony is, is great. You know what I yeah. mean? Because when people think of Utah, just generically, they're like, Oh, it's out in the West and it's a bunch of Mormons. And mm-hmm. um, that's what it is, you know? Mm-hmm. And there's sort of this certain opinion that people have about it. And I think that sort of plays into in the orchestral world, I think that plays into our, the people's 
perception of the Utah Symphony. So, but when we get like a fantastic conductor coming in here that's never been here, like two weeks ago, the new music director of the Lyric Opera in Chicago, he came and guest conducted us, and he was he was really surprised at how great we were. You know, like he was pleasantly surprised. Yes, yes. I, I see that over and over and over again with guest conductors that come in. So I think, like I said, we're slowly building our reputation, and I think. You know, the word is slowly getting out that mm-hmm. what we're doing is is pretty spectacular. You know, right. I think it's I think it's something that we all should be proud about here. Well, this podcast reaches three people, so I mean, every little <laughs> bit counts, right? <laughs> yeah, even even bad publicity is good publicity, right? Well, I was intrigued by what you said about this concert master, and we're not talking specifically trumpet per se. No, although everything we all we all know that everything eventually leads to the trumpet. We all know that. Absolutely. And all so, roads lead to the trumpet. <laughs> of course. And so you, you're the outsider. You're watching this, uh, this transformation in the string section mm-hmm. with this new concert master. Mm-hmm. What, what, what do you think was behind that? I mean, what, what, what was the strings like? I'm sure they were fantastic before she got there, but from your vantage point, sitting, watching the strings from afar, what, what do you think this one individual brought to the section that made them something really special? I think she brought an element of leadership that hadn't really been seen in a while. No disrespect to the, the concertmaster that was here when I got here. He's a, he's a beautiful violin player, beautiful human being. But I think over time, uh, people were just going through the motions, you know, and that can happen in any field, in any job. Um, and it happens in orchestras too. And you know, in an orchestra, when you have like the string section, which is the bulk of the orchestra and the bulk of the sound is coming from them consistently. If, if, you know, the majority of them are phoning it in or just kind of like going through the motions, it's not going to sound as inspiring or as rich as it, it could, you know, um, musically and just orally, like the sound that they're producing because um, they're not being challenged. They're not being pushed. Um, so when Madeline got here, um, I noticed that she would actually like turn around and verbally say stuff to the the whole section or say something to the principal cellist or say something to the bass player, the principal bassist. And I don't think that leadership has to be verbal necessarily, but I think, you know, with a section that's as big as a string section is. Um, there needs to be a certain amount of that in order for there to be progress or, you know, getting better, quote unquote. And also on top of that, Madeline sounds amazing. Like every solo that she plays, I mean, I, I think she's she's top of the top in terms of a concert master in the country, in my opinion. I mean, I've I've heard several and I think she can she could stand with any of them, uh, quite frankly, in terms of her approach to playing technique, her sound, it's just, it's fantastic. And I think her section mates and her colleagues in the string section, when they hear her commitment to sounding like that, I think that that rubs off on them. And whether they are consciously aware of that motivating them to sound better themselves, um, they're, they're committing themselves to it, you know? Because um, I like to think that when I play trumpet with my section, or even with the brass section in whatever that we're, whatever we're playing, I like to think that I'm leading with my sound and I'm leading by example in terms of like how I want things to sound. Um, and I, I see Madeline doing that too. 
Um, in addition to the strings, you know, like seeing the sort of change happen over the past, you know, several years, um, there's also been a lot of new hires, you know. So um, I think just with having younger, um, and I'm not ageist at all, but I mean, just like having um, younger, sort of more energetic, um, sort of chomping at the bit to have a job and like be sitting in an orchestra playing this really amazing repertoire that we get to play week to week. Um, I think that changes things too. I think that changes the energy output and the sound output that's coming collectively from the section. It sounds like maybe there were, there were moments where they were just going by rote. Kind of. I yeah. mean, from my perspective, yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. But, but that was the question well, it was, yeah. it was from your perspective. Yeah. And I mean, we all do that occasionally, you know, like we if yeah. we're, I mean, say, say, say we do like, like I said earlier, we do four operas a year here and they're usually like a two week run. And if it's something, in my opinion, boring, like Barbara of Seville, um, that's not super engaging for a trumpet player. So it's hard to find that energy and find that sort of excitement to be mm -hmm. sitting in the pit playing, you know, 1,543 second line G's over and over again. You know what I mean? Well, speak for yourself. I find that to be extremely stimulating <laughs> Good. well next time we do that i'll give you a call okay i'll put the plane <laughs> ticket <laughs> uh, um, but it seems to yeah. me like maybe maybe those those times where you have like a couple of weeks it seems like you could maybe kind of just it's there's nothing wrong with being on cruise control and no, you can kind not. of save your energy for the the next you don't you don't always have to be 100 percent on and 100 percent no. excited about and I, I don't know anybody that is. And I, quite right. frankly, I think if, if you were that way, I think you would end up killing yourself. I think it yeah. would just be too much. You would, you would burn out, essentially. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I have to, um, to take a more measured approach. Yeah. And maybe if you're doing those operas that aren't stimulating, then you just kind of take recharge your batteries a little bit, maybe. Exactly. And that's kind of, that that's a great way of putting it. I think that, um, I mean, there's great operas and stuff that we do, you know, we like some Puccini or Verdi or whatever it is like that, uh, that they're great to play. But even in those operas, sometimes they're long and you're sitting in the pit and you're not doing anything. Initially, one would, one thinks of just being bored and like you just become complacent with everything that's happening around you. But um, it's a great time to charge our batteries. Um, that's why I love the fact that we do those four operas a year is because it gets us off the stage. It gets us into a different environment where we have to listen differently um, to the orchestra. We have to listen to what's happening on stage with the singers. We have to, it's just, it's a different environment. And I think it's, it's very benefit beneficial for us to be able to learn something new, but also have a chance to recharge our, our, our batteries because the schedule is nice too. So. Yeah. Well, it's, it's kind of that principle of uh, even when you're that principle of, Resting is just as important as playing, right? You always want to rest at least as much as you play. And the rest and recovery is just as important, if not more so, than the actual performance. So maybe those those two weeks are just, you're just, just getting your, saving your energy so you can do the Bartok and the Shostakovich. Speaking of Jeff, we were talking about that concert that you did in uh, Malacca, Minnesota, which is your hometown. Which was fantastic. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. And Jeff and I both agreed that if the principal performer, the soloist, had just pushed in his tuning slide an eighth of an inch, it would have just been absolutely perfect evening. 
It would have pushed it over the edge just to make it sublime. Yeah, but you just have to keep your expectations realistic and you just take what you can get. Yeah. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and I'm I'm happy that you guys were able to like sacrifice right. you know, the, the intonation right. for that that setting. So no. but uh, but Travis, I, I you're from Malacca, Minnesota, which is yep. very very little known. It's right on one sixty nine, halfway yep. between Elk River and Lake Mille Lacs, for those of you familiar with yeah. the geography of the area. Yeah. But what's it like to go back to a, a really small town in Minnesota, and you are, like, nobody's there has ever heard of the Utah Symphony. But they hear the words Utah Symphony, and they think, well, that sounds really good. And so yeah. you're, you're kind of a celebrity. What's that like to go back home, and you've accomplished something? It's interesting. I don't feel like... I'm worthy of that sort of notoriety. And I understand the sort of like idea behind it. Cause it's like, you know, Moak has like two or 3000 people. It's tiny. I grew up on a dairy farm. You know what I mean? So it's like, um, nobody, people in Malacca equate my accomplishment of being principal trumpet in the Utah symphony and having a job as a musician in an orchestra as like being a quarterback on a, like on an NFL team. Like so many people have said that to me, they just think it's this incredible thing. And it's like, thank you. I mean, that's really kind of you to say that. And I am appreciative that, you know, you're like sort of putting me on this pedestal, but at the same time, it's like, I don't know. It, it, I just don't, I just don't feel worthy of it necessarily because it's like, I'm just a, I just play trumpet, you know, in an orchestra. It's not like I'm saving lives or, you know, like doing anything, anything really profound. It's good. I mean, I, I love where I, I came from. I loved my childhood um, growing up on a dairy farm. And I grew up with like my family. I just have one sibling, but it was a big farm. So I grew up with a lot of cousins on the farm. So like, I, I don't have a lot of complaints about my experience growing up there. And I enjoy going home. I enjoy going back to Malacca and um, being back on my parents' farm and, you know, sort of away from all the stresses of my sort of everyday life. I do like to sort of share, you know, my trumpet playing and sort of that sort of stuff with the community. And I never really even thought about that until a few years ago, I was inducted into the, into the Malacca High School Hall of Fame. Um, so, which I'm honored to be a part of, but, you know, like, most of the people who are in there are like doctors and scientists and, you know, people who are, in my opinion, actually like doing great things. So I felt a little bit like, like a sore thumb at that, at that uh, induction ceremony. But like, since then I sort of like put it together. I was like, you know, I, I want to share with this community what great music is. And that's not even me necessarily. Like, I think that I can play the trumpet relatively well and they're going to think it's good regardless of how it sounds in my head. So I want to share with them what that is. And it started a few years ago and then it sort of like turned into what it was this summer. And I don't know what it'll look like next summer. I hope to do it again. I hope to do it every summer because I, you know, um, it's a farming community. It's a very rural community um, and they're beautiful people in their own way, but they don't, they don't have access to that stuff where they are. It make, it brings more meaning to what I do as a musician and what I do as a trumpet player, it brings more meaning to me that I can share that with them and I can 
you know, even if it's just for one night a year, you know, because it gives them access to maybe something that they've never heard before, or it can turn them on to like the Copeland, like this past summer, uh, Jeff arranged the quintet, uh, Appalachian spring, quote unquote, it was like a five minute little snippet of it. It was mostly simple gifts, but they can connect with that. And I think that's the, that's the beautiful thing about it is that I'm sharing what I love and I'm so passionate about with this rural farming community in central Minnesota. And they normally wouldn't hear that stuff. And if they, if they have, they haven't recognized it and they haven't like, it hasn't really resonated with them. So I really have enjoyed sort of planning all this and putting it together so that it just makes me feel good. I don't, I don't know how else to say it. You know what I mean? Um, well, you share your gift with someone else. Yeah. And, and it makes their life a little bit better for that. I moment. hope so. I hope so. Yeah. Sharing and, and giving is there's just something about it. Even if, even if you're just sharing your talent, I get to share my trumpet playing every week here with the Utah symphony, but doing it in, in, in the setting that I was doing in Malacca, um, where it's more intimate, it just, it, it's for me, even it's more profound. Like it actually, it resonates with me as the performer even more, you know, cause I guess, I guess, I'm, I mean, I'm connected to that community because I grew up there and like, I know a lot of people there still. And, you know, if I talk to them after the concert or even leading up to the concert, like people are excited about it. And I just don't have that. I don't have that same exact connection with the orchestra here. I mean, it's a, it's a big thing. Mm-hmm. You know, we get 3000 people that come to a concert. It's like, I can't, go and like mingle mingle with everybody and see how they're yeah. feeling and take the yeah. pulse of the audience. It's really I think it's a really beautiful thing that has sort of grown here in the past few years for my hometown and I want to keep doing it. I mean, I think it's because of that. Like I think it's just it's it's fun. And maybe the repertoire will change. But like you said, like maybe we'll play music that's more appropriate for the setting. Maybe it'll, we'll do some more polkas or something. I don't know. Like, like my uncle was actually at the concert and my dad told me that he was like, I wish that he would, you know, it was a great concert, but I wish that he would have done like some polkas with the brass quintet or something like that. And I was just like, Oh God, you, you can't, you can't please everybody, but you know, um, um, but you know, like it's just exploring stuff like that. You know, like I, I don't, I'm, I'm not going to shy away from, playing a polka like i love that stuff you know like i love movie music like it, it's not just like chike four or like Mahler or bach and stuff like that that i enjoy exclusively in the setting that playing this concert in malacca if i can draw people in that normally wouldn't listen to that type of music i think that's a win well folks we have been listening to travis peterson uh principal trumpet of the utah symphony and we want to thank our sponsors for this episode the Utah Symphony Audition Committee and the Salt Lake ah. City Tourism Board, who have graciously yep. sponsored. You yes. two, you two make me want to visit Salt Lake City. I don't, I don't know anything about it outside of the Utah Jazz, the basketball team. Well, you need to come. It's, I think you would love it. Honestly, I want to. Um, you two have completely turned me onto it. I like, I want to work for your symphony. Be like we, your podcast guy. You could totally do it. We have a podcast. It's called Ghost Light Podcast. But I think the guy who does it just got a different job so maybe there's an opening well the, those jobs um, are remote anyway so have to think true. of something else i'll be yeah, the guy sure. that brings out the towels for the spit <laughs> yeah that's true <laughs> and to wipe our sweat off you know right. we're working real hard right 
All right. And uh, Travis does not have a website. He's one of the few uh, musicians out there who do not have a website that never gets maintained. So yeah, that's, I mean, uh, you can you can find me on Facebook and Instagram. I mean, I post like trumpet videos on there. There you if go. You, if you really want to, but don't feel the need. Well, this is wonderful, Travis, and um, I'm I'm sure that Jeff is listening in. And this is this is wonderful. I, I was real treat to meet you too. Hat tip to my brother John, who, who we've mentioned before. He he's the one that turned me on to you a couple of years ago, and we reached out, and finally we got this appointment to work out <clears throat> here in 2021. Uh, but uh, congratulations to you and your success, and uh, just love to hear people who love what they're doing and are just happy and content with where they're wh- with where they're at, and that definitely applies to you. So. Thanks for being on the show, dude. Thanks, James. I really appreciate it. It's a lot of fun. Well, thanks for pressing play on today's episode. Make sure you press that little subscribe button on your podcast player if you haven't already, so you'll never miss an episode when they publish. And if you want to dive deeper, you can visit me on the web at jamesnewcombontrumpet.com, where you'll find ways to connect with me via social media and even a customized mobile app that has a plethora of material I think you'll find interesting. Again, that's jamesnewcombontrumpet.com. This is James Newcomb, signing off.